A smart person learns from their mistakes. A wise person learns from others' mistakes. Welcome to the My Mistakes Podcast. We cover the lessons learned from the mistakes we've made in business so you won't do the same. I'm Chris Chanchuli. Today's guest is Charlie Moore. He's someone that believes in environmental sustainability more than most. He got involved in business at age 17 and by 35 had done over a billion dollars in sales. What led Charlie to get involved in solar, environmental sustainability, housing, native bees, and now the movement known as Kushware, which is bringing awareness to people and the impact they have on this planet. Find out what Charlie learned along the way and how each person can be doing their part. This episode is being brought to you by Don Pablo Coffee. Specialty grade beans roasted in small batches. It's a better cup of coffee. Get yours at Amazon or at DonPabloCoffee.com. All right, so this episode of the My Mistakes podcast is going to be fun. Fun for me, and I hope fun for our guest. This is going back about two decades, about 15, 16 years or so. My guest is someone who I had heard about from a friend of mine at the gym. And the stories that preceded him were that guy chartered a jet and flew it to Vegas for the weekend. Have you heard about that guy's brother? He won $50,000 this weekend in poker. These stories were just coming out about these guys. And then when I met both of them, they could not have been friendlier, more fun-loving, just really great wild people. So one of those brothers is here today. And this is our guest, Mr. Charlie Moore. All right, Charlie. (laughs) Thanks, man. Thank you for having me, bro. I know that you have some fun stories. And earlier today, I was listening to podcasts with Jordan Belfort from the Wolves of Wall Street and hearing some of his stories. And it made me think of you. And I said, what if you have any stories like that to tell? when we're recording tonight. So we'll see where we end up. If you could start off, let everyone know, name, where you're from, and kind of what got you started on your way in business. All right. So name is Charlie Moore, M-O-H-R. I spell it differently than most. From Long Island. And what got me interested in business was wanting to drive my own path of life, to to have you know freedom of my choice of quality time of day. What age did this start? Like, what was your early background in school? Did you graduate high school? Did you go to high school? Were you schooled at home? Start us off there. Yeah, West Hempstead High School worked in high school while I was in high school. You know, a lot of like, you know, cash side things started out 13 years old or so, packing newspapers full of those coupon things. I don't even know if that even exists anymore. And then, you know, doing stuff at a junkyard for some cash and just, paying my own way and bought my first car at 16 with my own money. It was a beater, but it was a fun beater to have, you know, with the roof, the ceiling, you know, kind of falling down on my head, especially in the summertime. So as I'm driving, you know, the whole ceiling would just collapse on me, you know, just the cloth, you know, just at 17 in my senior year, started my first business with a friend of mine and we were fabricating and installing Corian countertops. We just love doing it. I mean, just seeing the finished product and seeing the 
the smiles on the clients' faces and how expedited we were. I mean, we would have a full tear out template and installation done in a week. And we were these 17 year old kids outperforming, you know, some of the top in- installation companies in all of the island. And then I went to college. I was doing that while I was in college as well. And then my, oh, let's see, what was it? I think my sophomore or junior year, I started, we lost the guy who helped us get into the quarrying. He passed away when I was in my sophomore year. And it just didn't feel right to continue doing that business. So I started working for this silicon chip company with my brother. And we stumbled upon a completely new industry. I mean, new industry as a whole, but even a new industry for the office, basically. You know, they've never dealt with any of that. And then I was there for about three months, left, and then I started up my own my own company to just get heavily involved and just focus strictly on that. Graduated from college, also went for my master's while I was running my company and doing both at the same time, which was crazy. And it was funny too, because some of my teachers, you know, my professors, you know, I'm telling them I'm running my own business. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah. you know, like almost like brushing me off to the side, like, yeah, that's cute. That's cute. And then I'm like, I was like, guys, you know, like sometimes I would, I would have an issue with getting assignments in on time and such. And when I, when they realized that I'm working on a global level, like I'm working with Asia and I'm working with Europe, all of a sudden they started giving me like leeway, realizing that, you know, I'm building a corporation and it's legit. Go back to, you said I started a company, but you didn't mention what kind of company, what it was. What was that business that you were doing while you were in college and what were you doing contacting overseas? And I got involved with a metal called polysilicon, which is the raw materials that are used for computer chips and solar solar panels, well, solar cells. And what I loved about it was understanding the logistics of the supply chain and the way I saw myself being able to come in with a value add was being able to expedite the logistics and expedite negotiations into long-term agreements. So at that time, polysilicon moved it through many hands all over the world. You know, so like a lot of this, a lot of the raw material was being exported from the U.S. and it was going into you know either going into Asia or Europe. For instance, I'll give an example of a supply chain. We would export the material out of the U.S. to either. Taiwan or Germany. And what they would do is that they would manufacture ingots. Uh, basically, is a 400 kilo, looks like a tor- metal torpedo. Then we would buy the ingots back and buy the scrap back. And that was a big part of it was the byproduct industry. We started creating a lot of value in the marketplace for byproduct and putting that back into the industry because at the time, a lot of these manufacturers were testing mixing in byproduct to prime material to see if they could still get the efficiency ratings out of the finished product of the solar cell. So blended materials became a big thing and and we had to categorize a lot of the scrap materials. And there's a whole slew of it. So for instance, off of just out of the pure polysilicon, one of the scrap byproducts was known as powder and uh, and granules, fines they called it, F-I-N-E-S. So we would take that and we would sell prime charged you know, we would sell the prime and then we knew that some of our clients needed a 15% charge of, of scrap. So we would blend some scrap with it into, not into the actual individual drums, 
but we would give them, you know, a shipment of of that fifteen percent of charge of scrap, along with the prime poly, either chunk or or granule materials. When it gets turned into the ingot, they slice the top and bottom off, which is known as tops and tails. So we would buy the tops and tails back, and we would buy ingots back. The ingots would get sent to the wafer manufacturers. We would sell the tops and sa- tops and tails back to you know, bundle it again, you know, uh, accumulate and bundle and then sh- resell. And then we would take the, the ingots and when they would slice the ingots, they would slice off the first few inches of each ingot on both sides to make sure that the atomic molecules were very, were completely consistent throughout the ingot. And those, those slices were called slugs. So we would buy the slugs back. And we started creating, like, even for packaging, for instance, like by the time that the wafers were sliced out of the ingot and then they were, you know, they were sent away, we'd buy broken wafers back. And then we would categorize broken wafers as like A grade wafer, B grade broken wafer, greater than three quarter, greater than half, helping these manufacturers even create packaging specifically for this to minimize any excess breakage. But it was funny, when, when I first started in this, there was one manufacturer in the U.S. that was a solar cell and solar panel manufacturer, and I wanted to buy broken solar cells because we, were bought, we would sell the broken solar cells or the B-grade cells or the C-grade cells, the, the, the solar cells that didn't meet to A-grade spec. We would sell those to, to like solar light companies. So you know those like garden lawn solar lights? Yep. That's where all of these solar cells went, all these, all these off-spec cells. But when we first started doing business with them, they were la- most of these guys were landfilling all of their byproduct. But these guys, what was funny about it, we, we said to them, like, we're, look, we're like, look, we'll cart away all of your byproduct materials, all of your, cell, all of your broken cells and any broken wafers. And they said, okay. So when I first started receiving shipments of it, I mean, it was sent to me literally in, these, in drums. And it was mixed in with like McDonald's wrappers and cigarette butts and sawdust. I don't even know where the sawdust was coming from. So I'm like, what the hell am I getting? So I told them, I said, guys, I'll pay you to sort it, you know? And then all of a sudden when, I, when they started sorting it, I started seeing that I could classify what's being sorted inside of here. You know? So I said, guys, the, the whole cells that don't meet spec, Let's put them in boxes and let's vertically stack them so they don't break anymore. So we could sell them as wholesales. So all of a sudden we created a commodity out of what was garbage. And then they caught on pretty quick. And then then we were always negotiating fair market pricing, which was, you know, whatever. It was fair, but it was annoying <laughs> because, you know, they started trying to play us against the customers. You know, that with the demand, they started a sales team to start outreaching for customers for byproduct materials. But, you know, we knew everyone in the market. so. You know, it made sense that we just figured out a way that we were justifiably and fairly working together and we're all making a piece of it. So when you're in college or getting your master's and you say you're working and running a company, when those professors found out what it was that you were doing, did they think this was brilliant and understand your concept here or were they trying to talk you out of it? No, actually... One of my professors during my master's, who's, who was also the dean of the department, allowed me to go into independent study. And because he was, it was also geared, you know, my, you know, I was taking environmental studies during my master's and he just appreciated that I was an integral part of the solar industry. He gave me a lot of leeway and basically let me basically, it was cool. In one semester, he's like, what do you want to do these credits on? I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, Pick your topic and it's yours. I was like, cool. Okay. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so I did, I did a topic on Superfund sites, you know, to understand the impact of Superfund sites and how messy it is and how expensive it is to fix a Superfund site. So I did a whole semester based on that, but it was fun. What did that eventually grow to? At what point did you get out of it? Well, by 07, I started making a, I started making a real name for myself. There's really, honestly, few individuals out there that was pounding that pavement, so to say, as I was. I mean, I, I would pull a 72-hour straight day, and all of a sudden, what I realized is that I significantly expedited communications because I stayed up around the clock to be able to communicate with Europe, US, and Asia all at the same time. So while others are sending out emails and waiting for responses where you get that 24-hour lag, it wasn't. So all of a sudden, I became this, you know, who's Charlie Moore? And everyone in the industry started hearing of me. So in 07, I came across this one company and I needed to scale quick. And what I saw is that we had an opportunity with this byproduct material. Byproduct was where it was, man. Byproduct is where the profit, profits were because prime materials had what was known as you know, projected spot market pricing. Okay. And the scrap materials was who needs it? And who needs it now? And, you know, it, it was fun too, because, you know, you, you had to play the game because you knew at the end of the quarter, a lot of the Asian customers would wait to the last second of the end of quarter to finally make a purchase because they knew that the big manufacturers wanted that revenue in. So what I did is that I said, all right, you know what, let's, let's mobilize the geography of the mobility of this material. So, you know, right before the Chinese New Year, I would, I would intentionally push material into Europe and stack it in Europe. And most sometimes I would even wind up buying back my own material at a premium after the Chinese New Year and then expedite it and air freight it to Asia. And that's what was crazy. Everything was air freighted. And I'm not talking about small volumes, okay? I mean, I'm talking about 10, 15, 20,000 kilos a shipment. And you're air freighting this at, you know, anywhere from 14 to $17 a kilo, depending on the time of the year where the premium was for air freight. So, I mean, this was a precious, this was really a precious high demand commodity at that time. I mean, prime material, prime material in 07 reached $585 a kilo. So I came across this one very large company called MEMC in the US. They were out of Pasadena, Texas. And I got a hold of one of the one of the VPs of global sales and marketing there. And it was funny. I was scared to death because I was, I was hounding this guy. You know, there was no LinkedIn back then. You know, I'm, I'm there calling. I'd call, get his voicemail. Sometimes I'd leave a message. Most of the time I'd hang up anytime it went to voicemail. I'd always have to go through his assistant and his assistant was a sweetheart, but it was very difficult to ever get him actually on the phone because the guy traveled around the world and there was no way they were going to give me his mobile number. So one day I called all of a sudden, I'm not expecting anything. I'm like, all right, you know, this is just going to go to voicemail again, but another two weeks, I'll try again. And he picks up the phone and he's like, who's this? And I'm like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I was taken back. And I'm like, this is Charlie Moore. And he's like, am I expecting your call right now? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you are. Because I've left you a couple of voice messages and I haven't received your call back. And, and he's like, well, what do you want? I said, I, I'd like some polysilicon. And he's like, yeah, so does everyone else in the world. Because again, this is at the prime peak of market and the demand was just soaring. Supply was low. So I told him, I said, look, I know for a fact that you have some pain in the ass 
customers that you deal with because they're reaching out to me and they're dropping your name. You're, you know, you're the, this godfather of Silicon. And by them frequently calling me, I know that they're getting, having a really hard time calling you. And that tells me that you don't want to even deal with these people. And he's like, okay. So I'm like, all I'm asking for is a shot. Give me one shot. If I fail, you'll never hear from me again. You don't even have my number. So don't even worry about calling me. So he's like, he's like, all right, what do you need? I'm like, I need 10,000 kilos of granules. And he's like, you have 24 hours to get me a purchase order and cash in hand. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so how much money was that? And he's calling from where again? He was actually in Massachusetts. The office was in Pasadena, Texas, but he, he, he worked satellite in Massachusetts. The guy was out of the country nine months a year. He personally moved, you know, 400 plus million dollars of silicon himself that year. So, you know, this deal was, this deal was, you know, upwards of five plus million just for that initial order. I was like, game on it. So all of a sudden, the second I got off the phone with him, I just started blasting every customer of mine in Asia. And I said, I have a total of 10,000 kilos. Whoever needs, you know, whoever needs anything, it's first right of refusal. If you need a partial, we can partial it. It's only available for 24 hours. And I have to give it to him though. He did give me, he gave me a reasonable discount to allow me to have market value. Okay. So I pumped it and pumped it. And all of a sudden I got the customers in. I had three customers, you know, yeah, we want a part of it. We want part. One guy took 5,000 kilos. The other two took 2,500 each. So you're getting the whole thing sold before it's even in your possession. Yep. So I shot them the invoice, shot them the, the wire instructions. I said, guys, I need a TT confirmation. TT confirmation is what they said back then for wires. I don't even know what they, I don't even think there's TT confirmations anymore. <laughs> but anyway, I'm like, you know, I was like, guys, you need to fax me the TT confirmation tonight. You have to send the money today. They're like, okay. And I've had established relationship with these, these my customers and we've done six and seven figure transactions before. So for them to send me the money and that pace was a non-issue. They know they knew I was good for it. All of a sudden, the next morning, I called and I had his mobile number and I called him and he trusted me with his mobile number now, you know, because I told him, I said, look, if I ever bother you and if I don't get this done, just block my number, you know? But so I go to him the next day and I'm like, here's your purchase order. And I'm like, invoice me. And he's like, you have the cash? I'm like, yeah. Wired the cash over that morning, got the shipment out two days later. Everyone was super happy. You sold everything before you even had it. So you got the purchase orders from them. You had the money wired into your account. You then brought him a purchase order for you to be buying it now. Money's already in your account. You wired to his account. Everything's done. I mean, what a clean transaction. You weren't nervous or scared that it was going to fall through and you weren't going to get the buyers that you needed to complete the order? It wasn't that. I was scared that I have my opportunity now to a company that I've been chasing down for months and months and months that here's my shot. And if I blow it, I'm not going to scale my business. I'm going to stay where I am. What were you generating a year from that business? My company is, was called Morco, M-O-H-R-C-O. And in 06, we did about 800,000 in total rev. 07 is when I got turned on to a whole new level. That's when we, that's when we did, that's when we did our seven figure year. And, you know, vast majority of it was from this, was from this deal because it was in about November, late November, early December is when I, when I came across them. And then where did it go from there? Once you were working 
with him, what ended up happening with Marco and your involvement? When we started talking, we started really taking a liking to each other because his sales strategy is, to, is still to this day is one of the most aggressive and strategic sales strategies I've ever even come across. I mean, the guy is the epitome of the you know 80s super success corporate America story, you know? And to me, it's like, you know, I look at those guys as some of the, those guys back then, they were the hardest hustlers that existed, I think, ever in our, in, in American society, man. Like those 80s corporate guys just grinded, you know? And so he taught me a lot of that. And I was like, wow, you know, and just hearing his stories, you know, and you're talking about like, you know, pre-computer days. <laughs> so, and then with me, I was coming up with market strategies, you know? And I, I was like, look, I don't want to just be, I don't want to just be this supplier vendor relationship. I want this to be, you know, let me help you guys increase the premium of the value of your product to market. So your company is seen as the highest grade premium product there is in the world. And I could help do this. And we could position this and we could st strategically align, you know, the different geographic territories and how we approach them and at what times of year. And I'll handle that and I'll do that. And, you know, I'll do that piece of it. And I was like, all I need is just the support. So when I bring orders in, we fulfill immediately and give, you know, let me have a little bit of first right of refusal. You know, we built that agreement at that, at that point. And it was just, it was cool because, you know, there was a percentage of materials that they would say, all right, we'll allow you the first right of refusal on this percentage of materials. And, but I mean, sometimes the time frames are really short. I mean, you're talking about like, sometimes they gave it to me for 72 hours and I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to move 80,000 kilos in 72 hours? And sometimes I couldn't, you know, and it was okay. But at the same time though, it's just, it was a wild market. And as the economy was going into its crash, I didn't feel any of it, even though the market was, even though the price of the polysilicon was significantly dropping, my volume demand kept increasing. You know, and I remember in 2000, 2010 and 11 were my, were my peak years. I mean, th those were two eight figure years in a row. And I remember when I was in San Francisco and I, sh and I pulled up the presentation chart of what my projection was when I showed them the chart of the start of time frame working with them from 07 to where we were presently. All they saw was an increase in sales. And then I showed them the chart of where the polysilicon prices were and it's dropping. And the SVP of the company at the time looked at this and he's like, he's like, wow, you're really moving that much? I'm like, I was like, yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. You know, because he, you know, he didn't have the the all the, you know, he didn't have know all the transactions that I've done. All he knew was that we had this meeting and I was just there to give my forecast. This wasn't a partnership between you guys working together on this. This was what you had where in 2006, 2007, you said 850,000 a year. Yeah. So you took it from a under seven figure to an eight figure business in less than 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. In about, uh, let's see. Oh, two is when I started late. Oh, two. I don't really consider that a full year. That was like me just like getting my feet wet, trying to figure out how to do things. But yeah, six years. Wow. Yeah. And you're how old at this time? 2000, I was 18. So in 08, I was 26. I, you know the movie, you know that movie, The Wolf of Wall Street? Yes. That's what it felt like for me. I felt invincible. 
I'm waiting for the stories to accompany <laughs> Wolf Wall Street. Um, so this is like the time period when you were chartering jets and going to Vegas. Yeah, the jet story is a funny story. So you end up selling the business. You've got this business that's cranking away. And then I didn't sell it. Okay. So there's no exit strategy. You were holding on. My exit was I knew that I knew that my role of the industry, because everything was becoming vertically integrated, meaning that they were starting to produce their own polysilicon, produce their own ingots, produce their own wafers, produce their own cells, produce their own panels. I knew that I was going to, I was just going to lose market share. There was no reason for my role anymore. So I was kind of forecasting that and, you know, preparing my exit, so to say. But the exit was forced upon me with the hurricanes, where the hurricanes destroyed the warehouse, destroyed my house. And, and I was like, all right, I am no longer in this industry and I am homeless. And yeah. <laughs> all right. So on that note, let's go to the happy note of flying out to Vegas on a charter jet. <laughs> so, so this is what happened with this one. We're at a conference, a big trade show in San Francisco, and the leading broker company in the industry was from Korea. Okay. Really, really cool guy. Yeah. I mean, and he was like, he was doing, you know, 10 figures, you know, it was just insanity what he was doing. I was very far from anywhere being near this guy and we knew of each other and he always saw me as like a competition. And I'm like, dude, how greedy can you be? Let me just get my little market share and I'll, I'll leave you, you alone, you know? But anyway, so we were out there, we started drinking at this really good Korean restaurant. We we're drinking some soju and all of a sudden I got drunk. And I got drunk really fast. And I, I told him, I was like, don't let me drink. If I drink, something bad's going to happen. It just always does. So, <laughs> so this is what happened to me is I woke up with a killer hangover, killer hangover. And I'm in this massive suite and I have no clue where I am. And now, hence, I was in San Francisco the night before hanging out. So I'm like, what the heck? I was like, what is going on? Like, I felt like dying. You know, like when you have that t- terrible, terrible hangover. And so I'm trying to get the blinds open. I can't get the blinds open because they're on some button or mechanic machine. And I can't, I don't even know where the switch is for it or for remote control. And I open up the book that's next to the, you know, usually next to the bed. And I see a 702 area code and I'm like, oh God, no, 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 no. And finally I figured out how to open the blinds. And then I see this black pyramid in in the (laughs) middle of the desert. And I'm like, Oh God, this is really, really bad. And I, I, I had a meeting at 10 a.m. So I called, I called one of my associates and I'm like, yo, you got to do me a favor. You, you got to mail my bags back to New York. I'm going home. And she's like, what do you mean? We have this big meeting right now. I'm like, she's like, where are you? I've been trying to call you. I'm like, I'm in Vegas. And she's like, what are you doing in Vegas? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going home. I'm in pain. I'm going home. <laughs> so, so the craziest part, I have photos. I have photos of this. This is, this is where the story gets nuts and people are like, no way. And then when I show them photos, they're like, are you kidding me? I get to the airport and as I'm at the airport, I go up to the, the, you know, to check in. They're like, oh, would you like to upgrade? And I'm like, how much? And it was only $250 for the upgrade for first class. I'm like, absolutely. Take it. I get it. As I'm sitting there, they're boarding first class because I just want to get on the plane, get a Bloody Mary and just kill the hangover and go to sleep. And as I'm walking on, this is, this is blew my mind. The pilot and co-pilot look at me and they're like, Charlie, dude, you're, you're an animal, bro. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) (laughs) 
And so I'm like, let me let me see how cool I am with these guys. I'm like, yeah, what's up? What's up? They're like, yo, last night was insanity. You, you, that was crazy, man. That party was nuts. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I was like, yo, I've never seen the cockpit of a commercial jet before. I'm like, yo, can I take a peek at it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, go take a seat. Give me your phone. We'll take a picture of you. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so I get into my seat and I'm just going through like, you know, just trying to keep my mind off things. I'm going through business cards and I have this pilot and co-pilot's business card in my stack of business cards. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to go home. Finally, I get a hold of the people that I was with and I'm like, guys, what happened that night? And they're like, oh my God, it was a trip, man. You're, you're so that the big shot was talking a lot of crap that night. So I called him out on, he kept talking about how he's a whale at the Bellagio. So I called him out. I'm like, all right, big whale, let's go see the type of comps you can get, you know? So he's like, all right. So we all jumped on his jet and we flew to Vegas. And I don't remember any of this. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, this is a Korean guy? Yeah. Yeah. So apparently he gets comped pretty damn well because the suite that I woke up in was absolutely, it was stunning, dude. It was a multi-bedroom, massive, giant suite with a piano in in the living room and everything. They left me there to go back to San Francisco because they're like, they're like, yeah, you know, we threw this big party in the room and we had all these people hanging out with us and it was chaos. And they're like, you just look so comfortable when you went to sleep in the room that we were like, all right, we'll just leave him. He's cool. He's comfortable. (laughs) So that was my Vegas. That was the first and last time I'll ever go to Vegas. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, that was that. But I'm more of a water guy though. You know, like I even, I'm going for my, I'm going for my flight lessons now to learn how to fly for myself so I can start bouncing around domestically. But, you know, my passion is in the water. I've always, you know, I spent every last penny when I was 19 to buy my center console just to, so I could be on the water. And in 2010 is when I bought my yacht. That was one of the most amazing life experiences as I've ever had because when the hurricanes came and destroyed everything and living on the yacht, that was, it was forced upon. But it was magnificent. I felt like I felt like a modern age Popeye. It was so cool. What classifies a yacht versus a big boat? All right. So a yacht, from my understanding, a yacht is anything over greater than thirty-three feet, and it has to have a cabin and a head. And I believe that's what classifies a yacht. And how big was your yacht? Mine was a forty-eight. It was a trawler. And you could live on that. Oh, yeah, it was great. I had two staterooms, two heads, full wash, washer, dryer, kitchen, dining room, a salon. Uh, salon is a uh, like a living room on a boat. How long were you living out on that? For most of 2011, after Hurricane Irene, we brought the boat down to North Carolina. Well, we were going down to Florida, but then we decided to stay in North Carolina for the majority of the winter in a spot called Moorhead City because my brother-in-law was stationed there with the Coast Guard. And Moorhead City in Beaufort is really cool because along on the intracoastal, there's a whole bunch of restaurants that are right on the water. And they even have shopping mart on the water. So, you know, think about when you're going food shopping, I'm pulling my house up to the dock of the food store and bring the cart right to my boat, unload, and I'm done. And then even at night was nice because at the restaurants, you just pull into a restaurant. Most of the time, the waitresses would just serve us right on our boat up on the bridge. My daughter, who was in, you know, she was only 18 months at the time, you know, she'd be in her cabin asleep. And then my wife and I would just strap on the baby monitor 
the air conditioning's on, we have ship to shore power, and we would just hang out right there on the dock, dancing, listening to music, you know, waking up in the morning, going kayaking, throwing my daughter in my lap, saying, Hey, you know, hold my coffee for me. And then we would see dolphins, you know, swimming around us in the intercoast. So it was really, really so awesome. That trip was that trip was actually pretty calm. You know, I think it took us five days to get down there, but I spent an extra day in Annapolis because Annapolis was beautiful as well. But that was pretty cool. And then in 2012, we got hit with Hurricane Sandy and I couldn't move my boat at this point to get down south. There was so much debris and there was no, there was no fueling stations for a majority of the, the, the East Coast. So I was like, well, I'm stuck this winter. So that's what made me buy my house up in the mountains. But then that summer, we, you know, about, about April-ish, we lived on the boat straight through pretty much until about November. We just did a really cool like circumnavigation cruise around Long Island. But, you know, I think we did the trip for like five or six weeks, just stopping at different ports along the way. And once we got bored of that port, we just moved on. And were you working while you were doing this? I've always taken off every single summer. This is actually the first summer that I'm actually working in many, many years. So I would take off from my birthday, June 12th until Labor Day. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't work a stitch because Europe is, you know, at the time, Europe is pretty much completely shut down and the Asian market knew that Europe was shut down. So the supply prices were at the floor. So, which was great because I like to play in the summer. So me, I made most of my, you know, we, in that industry, we made most of that income in the fourth quarter and in the second, uh, the fourth quarter and the end of the second quarter. That's when most of the money was made. So you weren't taking a birthday, three months sabbatical. It was because everyone else was not working. So you figured when in Rome, when in Rome, make as much money as you can in those quarters and then enjoy the rest of the time. Interesting philosophy. So from yachts, what got you into bees? Because that's something that if you watch Arrested Development, there's an episode where Job one of the funniest characters ever in television. He talks about starting a business selling bees. And when we were talking and you told me that you were leaving the bee business, I just busted out laughing because of that episode of like who sells bees. But can you tell us about what got you into selling bees and why you're so passionate about those little guys? Well, the whole year of 2013, I basically, because of the hurricane, you know, because of the hurricane Sandy and, you know, when you lose everything once, it stings like hell. It's, it's a big emotional hit. It's financial also, but it's a big emotional hit. 2012, when Sandy came, I lost everything, everything. I couldn't financially recover from that. And especially at that time in the industry, you know, with everything getting vertically integrated, cash was king in that industry and cash is king in many industries, particularly this industry, you needed to have seven figures to play now at this level minimum for me to lose everything. And from San, from Irene and Sandy, I lost both of my fourth quarters because of the, of the disruption of losing the office and the warehouse, you know, because by this time I'm stockpiling material, I'm not just, you know, getting cash, flipping it and, and collecting. I was, keeping inventory, you know? So when Sandy hit, I had about 60,000 kilos of material sitting that got destroyed. And what was the street value, if you will, per kilo then? 
at that time on that material, uh, it's probably around, I think it was like 45, 50 a kilo, somewhere in that proximity, probably about 45, 50 a kilo. I don't remember exactly, but I remember it was, it was definitely in the forties at that time. So you had somewhere around $5 million in inventory stored up. And I'm guessing when you have a business like that and cash is king and you're needing to have it on hand, I'm guessing you weren't paying yourself much of a salary. Because I'm sure someone hearing this would say, how can you be doing that kind of money and lose everything? I'm assuming that you weren't paying yourself or minimally at the time. No, at the time, that was the first year. That, that was like the first year I was at, like nearly completely debt free. You know, I mean, I only owed about 20% left on my yacht. I, all of my student loans were paid off. All of my cars were paid off. My house was paid off. I was putting a lot of money away into my retirement account. So you know, what I mean by losing it all is like, I lost that surface cash, but I also lost like that 10 years, that pe- previous 10 years of busting my ass. Now I have kids. Now I have dependents. This is the time that I want to like not have to kill myself. And now I'm being forced to kill myself and I'm going to have to rebudget my entire life now because of the circumstance of what happened. And I just felt like, why bother? Like, why should I really, why should I really even give a shit about this? Because if it's that easy to lose everything for, you know, within 14 months of each other, I was like, I'm done. So when was it like majority of the year of 2013, I actually not majority, the entire year of 2013, I didn't work a single day through the winter. I was living at the house in Pennsylvania and I just started chopping wood. And just started chopping wood. And I'm just trying to think. I'm like, all right, I'm no longer in my industry. My industry is dying anyway. So this has kind of forced me out. And it forced me out probably at a good time. And I had to look at the brighter side of things. But the hell am I going to do now? And I started thinking about, all right, I was in the solar industry. And I helped to create a vertical integration channel in solar. So what else can I get involved with that provides value to society that it has as an important level. So I did the energy part. So I started thinking about food and water. You know, I saw that water at that time in 2013 was going to be, be start becoming a commodity, which it is now. I mean, look at it. Like, dude, you buy a pH, you know, uh, a high pH water, you're spending an arm and a leg. It's more than gasoline per, per gallon. And then I was thinking about food. And at the time, organic food was newish, you know, like very, very new in 2013, but it was very expensive. So I started thinking like, what how can we increase organic food production? And that's what led me into investigating and stumbling upon learning about native pollinating bees. As I started learning about it, I was like, okay. And then I found this company out of Washington, which at the time he was running his operation out of his garage. He was educating me, but at the same time, everything that he was doing was very confusing. And he was dealing really mostly with like, you know, farms and orchards at the time, very, very little bit with backyard gardeners because his products were just confusing. You know, he had a 17 page catalog and I'm like, all right, I'm learning about this stuff now. And there's no reason to have a 17 page catalog. And so what I did is I came to him and I said, look, let me partner with you. I'll run the entire front end of the company. I'm going to build a marketing campaign. We're going to rebrand it. I'm going to come in and I, I don't even expect, I don't even expect like, you know, any compensation for 2014. Let me build the whole business plan and model and, you know, calibrate and optimize. So that's what I did. And then he liked it. So 2015 comes and I start driving this and we rebranded, we started rebranding everything. And I consolidated that 17 page catalog down to a two page catalog, started rebuilding the whole website, 
new logo, everything. And all of a sudden we even had our own phrase of, you know, helping, you know, growing the backyards of America. And as we started learning more and more about this, we started seeing that these little native bees can increase organic food production by about 400% per acre if you have the right population of the bees on site. And what was even more important is that we had to start educating people on what's known as polyculture farming instead of monoculture. Monoculture is like you plant one crop. And what the problem is with native bees in one crop is that when you have your bloom, the bees are going to love it during the bloom, but a bloom period could, you know, it w- w- is, you know, will be less than two weeks. So all of a sudden you have all these native bees there saying, where the hell will all my food go? You know, you're only providing the bees like one source of food. You know, it would be like us eating steak every single day for our life. So it was important to educate on polyculture farming, you know, making sure that you had multiple blooms or what's known as cover crop, which are native plants that bloom in conjunction with the food blooms to keep those bees on site so they didn't disperse. So as we started optimizing these systems, I was invited to the UN to to talk about it, which was really exciting. Never thought for a million years I'd be at the UN talking about this. I completely transitioned into a completely new industry. Some of my past silicon, you know, the the people from the polysilicon industry were in awe how quickly I transitioned into this. And you know, in our first year, we we more than two x way more than that, more than two x that. I mean, twenty sixteen we two x twenty fifteen, but twenty fifteen, I think we like nearly eight x what the previous year revenue was because of this new system. You know, we were talking now to the backyard gardener. We're talking to about setting these bee houses up right in your backyard and how easy it was, and building education programs around and videos and the whole nine. And there's a lot of popularity in that right off the bat. No, not at all, because every single person, and still many people believe, back then everyone believed this, but now more and more people are coming to understanding, and a big part of that was because of, you know, and I will toot my horn on this, was my influence because I started bringing it nationally, was, you know, everyone was thinking like, well, well, where's the honey go? You know, or won't I get stung? Or, you know, or how do I harvest the honey? And the hardest part was saying, they don't make honey. Well, what's the point of the bee? Pollination. Well, why do I need pollination? Oh my God. <laughs> so, uh, fair questions though. Fair, very fair questions. I was, I was wondering all the same things, but go on. Yeah. So, so I was like, wow, we have, you know, I'm like, we have to build a, like a level zero education as if we like, you know, nothing against the general public, but like, as if we were talking to a kindergartner, how do we make that education un- understood simply? So everyone understands it. So it was a really, really wild curve doing this. But I started getting very aggressive with larger corporations, you know, reaching out to Tractor Supply, getting our products on. It took me three years to get in the door with Tractor. You know, talking to Kroger's, talking to Costco, talking to QVC. Like, you know, I got our products on QVC and Zulily, which was massive for us. And it's like, you know, wow, like just creating that presence, you know, doing a lot of co-branded marketing campaigns with Old Farmers Almanac. And then working with a lot of NGOs, you know, nonprofit organizations to just help to spread the education out there, you know, getting, and then, you know, I was, I was on a couple of PBS shows, which was fun, but that's what we were doing. You know, I never made it to Sesame street though, but it wasn't set up as a nonprofit. No, no, for profit. Really what we were was a hardware and, and B distribution company. We were commoditizing the native bees. I'm trying to think of any other industry that I can think of in which 
it's not like it's a pet and it's not producing honey. It's helping you to garden more efficiently. Yep. And building your own population of, of bees. So you, you grow a manageable and acclimated native bee population. And do they sting or no? They can. But the only reason they'll sting is out of pure self-defense. If, like, if you try to squish it in your hand, it'll sting you. If it lands on you, it has no threat to sting you. It's not like a yellow jacket. A yellow jacket might just jack you up for that reason. But like these little native bees, first off, most people wouldn't even notice them as bees because they're not yellow and black and they don't look anything like a honeybee. Some of them are metallic blue. Some of them are tiny. I mean, literally tiny, like a quarter of the size of a housefly. And so what we did is we provide the nesting materials for them. And that was the big part of it was, you know, because we kept, we keep our property so meticulous, every, anything that is dead on our property, we remove. But that dead debris is nesting, is native nesting. So what we did is just, is just provided artificial nesting sites. So think of it as like, an, like a vacant apartment building. Uh, a female native bee will move into those holes. So and at the time we were selling the cocoons because we didn't know better. But as time went on, I started realizing how unethical it was selling the cocoons after all the research we were getting back from the USDA and the USGS and from like Cornell University. So I was like, we can't sell cocoons anymore because what we were unintentionally doing was actually, even though they might, those bees were native to the US, doesn't mean that the bee that's in Washington state is native to the backyards of, you know, Hudson Valley in New York. And when we would ship the bees there, what we were doing was we were unintentionally creating invasive species. So that's where the first line of discrepancies happened with my former partner where, you know, I was saying like, look, we can't sell these bees because it's going to create, you know, invasive species and we're going to create more harm than good in the long run. He just wanted to continue to profiteer off of this, you know, and then he was coming out with other products too, like bee pheromones, like a way to attract native bees. And when we saw that the bee pheromones would only attract either a single species, most in most cases, which would actually deter the other species, you're not you're creating now a monoculture native bee population. You're not getting the diversity. And that was bad as well. So in 2018, right before 10 days before my daughter was born, my ex-partner totally screwed me and kicked me out of the company. And again now, this was like the third storm in my life that I just lost everything that I built. And I'm not just building a business. I'm building industry standards, you know, and I'm building an industry at this mat at this point. And that was like one of the lowest blows of my life was when he did that because all of a sudden now I have this is my fourth kid. I have no income source. I was I was paying myself extraordinarily modestly doing this because I wanted to just allow the company to keep scaling and growing, and I was barely giving myself enough to keep food on the table. I had a retirement account. So I was just withdrawing against that to help subsidize my household expenses. But when he did that to me, it was just one of the most greedy moves. And, you know, the day before I called him saying, Hey, I think I got the tractor supply deal to where we could get the products now in the physical locations. And that, and the next day he called me, kicked me out. I thought he was joking at first. I started laughing. You know, because the way he said, he's like, Charles, I think at this point, 
and, and this is exactly what he said to me. But I'll never forget this. This actually haunts me, which sucks. It's gonna, it's gonna be with me for a long time. He's like, Charles, this is where we part ways. You're young enough and smart enough to figure out your next steps in life, and it's only fair to my wife and I that I pay myself more because we'd like to retire soon. I started laughing because he said it that straightforward. And you're talking about someone who I'm on the phone with four or five times a day for the last four years. And it was totally out of left field. And I thought he was joking at first. And when he, when he wasn't joking, I'm like, I was like, you, yeah, I, 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 I can't repeat what I said to him. But basically, it, it's, he better hope he never physically sees me ever in person in, in, in the rest of his life. How old of a guy was he? He was at the time 56, maybe somewhere in that age group. All right. So you're at an extreme low point. Things really suck right now. What was that upswing or when the pendulum swung for you, where did it next land you? And can you tell us about your current company? What I did is I started up my own B business quickly because I think he intentionally did it in that time frame, knowing that my I was about to have an infant and I'm, you know, I have three young kids at the time, you know, well, you know, an infant and three young kids. And I just think that he felt that with my fourth child being born, there was no time for me to retaliate against him. And I made sure that he knew that I wasn't just going to be a thorn, but I'm going to take this industry back. And in two months, I had a new company formed and up and operable. And I missed a big chunk of the first two months of my daughter being born of spending that quality time together because I had no income. I'm the only, I'm the sole proprietor of the household. My wife homeschools and takes care of the kids. So it's up to me to keep food on the table. And at that point, I just became, I became a very angry, and just very driven and head down. And there was nothing, no obstacle in front of me. That was the hardest year. There were some points in that year where I'm like, we can't afford to buy groceries yet today. So whatever we have in the pantry, let's just make do with it and give me a week or so, you know, or with some bills, can't pay them, can't pay it. I'd call them and say, look, I'll give you a partial. I'm never late on anything. I still have perfect payment history, but man, it was tough. It was, it was very tough. I mean, I even had to do, go into one of those consolidations of the credit cards, you know, because I'm still carrying a lot of the burden, financial burdens and losses from the hurricanes and reco- finally recovering out of that, you know, didn't make enough income t- to maintain expenses. So I'm withdrawing against my, my retirement and all of a sudden going down to nothing. And I'm like, all right, just balance, prioritize, balance, drive, prioritize, balance, drive. 2018 was a really, 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 really tough year. And that summer, I needed to just chill out. I needed to just stop and just focus on me. Took that summer off. When I came back in September, my brother was getting into the hemp industry. And he's like, yo, we have have an opportunity here with some stuff. I'm like, all right. We jumped in. We created a, a CBD distribution company. Started doing that. We had massive reach. I mean, we were, we were working with master distributors all over the country that, that t- touched upon over 160,000 retailers. And I was like, all right, I'm just looking at this like I'm selling a bee or I'm looking at this like I'm selling a silicon. It's all the same. It's, just, it's a commodity. And, it, and it's our job to bring premium value to the commodity that we have at our, at our hands. 
And so I started flying all over the country, meeting with these master distributors and started driving that. That was going great. And then in July of 2019, I started seeing a lot of restrictions in the industry, especially with digital marketing. And at that point, I said, I was like, all right, this is the time that I relaunched my company, Kush, because Kush had no restrictions by name. And I put, I wrote up a whole business plan. I, all I did was write on Facebook, like, Hey, Kush is, Kush is coming back. And right when I did that, all of a sudden I'm getting hit up by all of these like private equity groups and different financial guys saying, you know, Hey, we'd like to invest with, you know, would you, you're, are you look for an investor? Would you like to sell? Blah, blah, blah. So I went to one of my clients at the time of the CBD industry. And I said, look, I'll give you first right of refusal on this proposal because I believe in your product. I believe you're going to become a household name. You're a public entity. I like working with you guys. It's, it's been a really great run and we could really co-support each other with the growth of this. And this is a way that it could mature me to understand on how to operate and manage a public entity. And we did that. And then on February 5th, we started the agreements and of this, this year of 2020. And then March 5th, we did the public announcement. And what exactly is Kush? Kush is a lifestyle brand that's associated around sustainability and sustainability education and supporting of the independent arts and merchant community. I turned Kush into an acronym of keeping us sustainably healthy. So even though it will always have the sub meaning in that cannabis hemp space, it's keeping consistent to the mission statement of that acronym of keeping us sustainably healthy and pumping out sustainable education to create a collective, to create a community of people together. What I saw through all these years of doing everything was everyone was having to do the same thing. Everyone has to build a marketing strategy. Everyone has to build a sales strategy. Everyone has to put a marketing budget together and a sales budget and an advertising budget alone from cogs of operations, whether it's hardware or, or soft, software items and employment and you know the whole cost of operations of business. And the way I saw this is that we could use Kush to become the megaphone. And let's turn Kush into a community of like-minded individuals that are really geared towards solutions to create a better society of tomorrow. And let's start bringing them all together. So as we start bringing the content in, we, may, we become the megaphone out. So the analogy I always use is think of Kush as a tree. Well, in order for a tree to grow big and beautiful, it needs to have the right nutrients that start in the soil. And that's what I look at as far as the content that we bring in so, or create. So as we're outreaching to, from content creators, such as musicians or filmmakers, or even other different merchants that have really good quality products, as well as some sustainability experts that have some phenomenal education and quality, but they don't have the voice. They don't have that megaphone. Well, what we do is we take that content and we put it right into the soil. And as that tree starts sucking up the, the contents, the nutrients, it's my team inside of Kush that what we do is we organize that content now. And so we organize it. So as it goes out into the branches and as, a, as those flowers go into bloom, what happens now is that all the audience, because if we're all collectively trying to build a better future together, it's a collection to be accountable to each other and a responsibility to be accountable to each other. So as those flowers bloom on that tree, it's not just the content creators to go out and share their own content, 
but it's also for the audience to engage in it and share that content. So we're all acting as pollinators and we're spreading more of these beautiful seeds to be planted around. So instead of just having a little ripple effect, we're creating a tidal effect and and creating, you know, call to action items. For instance, an example is we did a big ocean beach cleanup two weeks ago. And when we did this ocean cleanup, we called out to the whole nation and said, look, we're out here doing this. Why don't you guys go out there and do it? And all of a sudden we have all these people out there cleaning the ocean. Now it wasn't a huge amount of people, but we made an impact. It was more than just a few. And as we continue to do this, we're seeing our audience growing, our audience wanting to be more engaged. And now it's thinking about, all right, how can we help now the monetization component of it, not just internally as Kush, you know, because we, we have a rev stream of merchandise. We have a rev stream of media. How can we help to create a monetizing push towards these content creators that want to be a part of this community, of this self-support community? and to provide vertical value add to them. And that's the pieces that we're designing right now and building into building customizations of vertical value adds into a universal standardized proposition in in whichever manner whether it's the merchant side or on the content creation side. Your entire story is so amazing. You're very consistent with everything that you've done like you've had the same mission as far as sustainability, from what you were majoring in in college to what you got your master's in. And it's not just getting the education so you can get a grade in an area that isn't as competitive or wondering like with the millennials saying that they're getting a PhD or a master's in something obscure that you don't understand where you're going to make a career from it you actually have discovered an entire industry in sustainability, whether it was the cells or the bees, and even now people making a difference and just, you touch so many lives in everything that you do. And that's what is just so impressive. You can tell that you very much care about each thing because you put your heart and soul into it. I really appreciate you recognizing that, man. It's um, this, this next step, this next step and leg is going to be very unique because especially with all the present circumstances, I almost saw it as a blessing, to be honest, in a, in a strange way with what's going on with COVID. Many people had to go into a self-reflection of who they are during these times because of the d- social distancing. And what I saw was we're in a transition. We're in a transition period of a new standard of society. And this is an opportune moment now to fix those broken pieces that were, were, were still mobile pre-COVID. You know, all those broken pieces were still moving. They had loose Band-Aids on them, but at least the Band-Aids were there. But now COVID happens, and all of a sudden those Band-Aids are ripped open, and, you know, those, those wounds of society were gushing blood. And I'm sitting here like, all right, this is the time now where we have to build a new collective, collaborative society, even if it's through this as a micro niche, it's important because to me, that's where the future is going based on where technology is leading us. So, you know, the whole goal and intent of this is to drive it towards more of a philosophical support of development for society, almost back to like ancient Grecian days of just thinking about what can we do to make it better? You know? 
So instead of just coming out with some bizarre widget app that just tells you how big your toes are through your shoes, you know, <laughs> you know, this is like, this is like real, you know, real stuff. And we're going to find the experts for this and we're going to bring education and we're going to standardize the education and we're going to bring these solutions together. And we want more of the questions to lead to better development and create collaborative projects and, and build multi multifaceted systems from this, you know, from sustainable housing to, to sustainable e-communities. And I'm really looking forward to this. I'm, I'm having, to be honest, even though I was crushing it in my twenties, crushing it, you know, I was the Wolf of Wall Street guy, just doing everything legal though, you know, through my experiences and where I am with my knowledge now and how I see the world, I have so much more gratitude waking up every single day because I think that this is the piece that really needs the most focus now. And that's the, the, the tie into the human connection through collaboration, you know, and I think that's the sustainable piece that I, that is the big need of focus right now. I love what you have to say. I think that's what brought us back together and to become what I consider good friends and just everything you're doing is amazing. Where can people find you? How can people get involved to help you make a difference on this planet? I don't want people finding me. No. <laughs> Why do you think I moved up top of a mountain for me? <laughs> so, you know, if someone wants to get involved, they could visit the website Kushware, K-U-S-H-W-E-A-R.net. You know, it's, look, the website's new. It's, it's our beta site. We built it to play with it, to, to build upon it as a, as a whole. You know, we're not looking at what are just optimizations that we need to do for us as a company internally, but what are the pieces that we could be adding and, and optimizing that everyone can get use of value, vertical value out of this as a platform to use. So I would say Kushware is the best place to start like getting involved, finding me. We have daily, cool daily themes. Like we have like Meatless Monday, TV Tuesday, Walking Wednesday, you know, which is geared towards all mental and physical health, radio spotlight Thursday. So we're shouting out independent musicians. You know, that's a big piece of this is, you know, if, when you hear A-list, A-list celebrities and musicians crying crying about the pains that they're dealing with right now financially through COVID. Think about these aspiring musicians that haven't yet made it big. And these guys are still pushing every single day to get their stuff heard. And that's that passion and drive. So we're looking for those musicians. We're looking for those, you know, even other talents, you know, skateboarders and surfers, you know, all these talents out there that want a voice. Here it is. Kush is your megaphone. Just come and bring it. That's awesome. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me tonight. You've lived at such a young age, not even 40 yet. You've lived and gained so much experience that I think once you hit your 40s, I don't think there's going to be any stopping you. By the time you're 50, I foresee you taking not a summer off, but maybe a decade to enjoy what you built up over the previous decade. Dude, Chris, thank you, man. Thank you for bringing me on the show, man. I just want to, if I could just leave people off with a, a little statement, if you don't mind. You go ahead. So don't become like a golem, okay? You know, like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, okay? You know, the precious, the precious. Everyone sees money as the precious right now. And all too often you forget to just pick up your head and just look around you and just reflect and appreciate 
on the journey that you've taken. I don't care whether at this present time it's been good or, you know, like you're in a better spot or a worse spot than what you were. If you could pick up your head and you can look around, you see that blue sky and you could, that, that is your reflection moment to appreciate what it is now because nothing, nothing is guaranteed to make things get better or to make things, you know, or things to come to be worse. But it's extremely important to just remember to just appreciate what it is. And especially if you're a parent, your kids are your greatest legacy. And that's where the time and the energy is the real focus. And, you know, ask yourself if you were a child, once again, put yourself back at eight, nine years old. And if you were to meet yourself today, would you be your own hero? And that's, that's pretty much what, uh, you know, that's what I, I ask myself personally every day. And I look at how my kids see me and I need to make sure that my kids see me as their hero. And I am there every step of the way to educate my kids because they come first through it all. They come first through it all. And that's why I'm doing this with Kush. I'm trying to build a society that's better for their generation. So they have the better opportunities and it's not as cutthroat or cannibalistic. It's, it's full of collaboration and, uh, and a collective. For more info, visit getconnects.com. That's G-E-T-C-O-N-N-E-X-X.com. Or visit us on Facebook at connects, comma, I-N-C, or on Instagram at connects underscore. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Don Pablo. All their coffee is roasted in small batches, providing the freshest tasting coffee imaginable. Simply put, it's a better cup of coffee. Order on Amazon or at DonPabloCoffee.com.